0: Revelation chapter 7, we're going to pick up in our study walking through the book of Revelation, a study that we've simply entitled Get Ready. And it's all about preparing our hearts, preparing our lives, preparing our, our, um, our families, preparing the world for the return of Jesus Christ. Because as it says there in Revelation chapter 1 verse 3, the time is near. I'm not much of a poetry person, but I came across... a Interesting story this week. A story about the man about a man named Francis Thompson. Francis Thompson had a rough several years as he kind of got started all the way up into his mid-20s, if not early 30s, was nothing more than a downward spiral in his life. It landed him on the streets of 19th century London. It landed him there as nothing more than a useless vagabond. He was an opium addict. He was a starving. Derelict, but there in his uh, in his debauchery, there in his his terrible life, and and, and just really making nothing of himself, God finally caught him. Francis Thompson was the son of a doctor. He started out with incredible pot- potential. his father sent him to to study for the priesthood and, and then he went and studied at another university for to be to become a doctor. He studied medicine, but he failed at both of those professions and became nothing more than a squanderer running from responsibility, running from his family, and running from God. Eventually, this prodigal hit rock bottom, wandering the back alleys of London. he was hungry, he had no friends and he was Addicted to drugs. He wore tattered clothes, his shoes were broken, he barely survived by selling matches and newspapers. But still, God did not give up in his relentless chase after this young man's soul. A ray of hope came his way when Thompson began to write poetry. Wilfred Maynall, an editor, He immediately saw Thompson's genius, and so he began to publish his works. In fact, he even encouraged him to go to a hospital and begin to seek treatment, and he personally nursed him through that recovery process. This marked a spiritual turnaround in Thompson's life. The poem that he wrote called Hound of Heaven, he writes of his flight from God and God's pursuit of him. I'm going to read this poem, or at least portion of this poem, and I hope you can see it on the screens. But he says this. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears. I hid from him, and under la- running laughter, still with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy came on the following feet. And a voice above their beat not shelters thee who wilt not shelter me." Now, if we were to take that last line and maybe bring it over into 21st century English, it would say something like this, nothing shelters you when you don't shelter me. Think about that for a moment. See, the natural and the first response of man to the lordship of Jesus Christ is rejection. And yet, at the same time as man in his sinfulness rejects God, we're seeking something and someone to shelter us. And yet, our first response is nothing more than rejection. It's rebellion. It's a refusal to bow this, and, and surrender to the Lord, to surrender and to bow the knee. Thompson's story sounds a whole lot like many stories. It sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul's story. You probably know the Apostle Paul's story. He was a Pharisee. He grew up very zealous for the law, he grew up a, a lover for the Old Testament and the teachings of the law, and he rejected Jesus. He rejected the followers of Jesus, and, and so he refused rejected the authority of Jesus. He refused to surrender to his lordship. In fact, he was so committed in his rebellion that he chased down the disciples of Christ and imprisoned them. And the Bible even tells us in Acts chapter 7 that when they went to stone Stephen, he was there watching over the robes, the cloaks. He refused to bow his knee and instead was committed to standing and shaking his proverbial fist in the face of God. That's who Saul of Tarsus was before he became Paul, the apostle. See, he was so committed to his agenda, at least until the Lord met him, he was committed to standing against God until he was standing there on the Damascus road, and in that moment he found himself on the ground in surrender before Jesus Christ. I love that passage there in Acts chapter nine, verses four and five, where when Jesus begins to speak, Paul is Saul of Tarsus at that time, is on his face there in the dust, and he speaks to Jesus and he calls him Lord. Paul surrender on that day there on the ground, placed him on his feet. That's what happens. I believe that's what we're going to see in this text this morning, is that when we begin to surrender ourselves to the Lord, he lifts us up and allows us to stand. It was true for Paul in his life. It enabled him to stand in the face of whatever came against him in his life. You read through the book of Acts and you see the story of Paul and you see the ministry of Paul and you see his travelings and and all the things he did for the Lord and with the Lord. You see him standing always in the face of incredible and intense adversaries, people who wanted to take him out, people who wanted to kill him, people who wanted to beat him and often did, and yet he was untouchable. Paul became an untouchable man by earthly powers, and here's what I mean by that. His accusers, his persecutors, those who would seek to do him harm, would say things like this Paul, you better hush up about Jesus or we're going to kill you. And the typical person would hear that and would probably begin to hush up a little bit, would begin to quiet down, wouldn't be so outward and so forceful in their words. But for Paul, he would simply look at that and hear that statement and say, Great, to die is gain. You want me to hush up? I'm not going to hush up. If you're going to kill me, to die is gain. They might back off and say, well, you know what? Never mind. We're going to let you live. Paul would look at them and say, well, to live is Christ. If I'm going to die, it's gain. If I'm going to live, it's for Christ. And then they would say, okay, then we're going to torture you. Paul, we're going to make you suffer. Well, I'm not going to enjoy that, he might say. But here's what I would say about that. This light, momentary affliction, is preparing for me an eternal weight of glory beyond all Comparison. At this moment, their heads are beginning to spin. It doesn't matter what they say, what they do, what they threaten him with. He comes back and he says, I'm fine. If you're going to kill me, that's gain. If I'm going to live, then that's for Christ. If you're going to make me suffer, I'm not going to enjoy it, but it's for the glory of God, and he's going to do it. Somehow he's going to use it for my good. So they look at him and say, you know what? We're just going to lock you in prison. Paul, we're going to throw away the key. There's, no one's ever going to hear from you anymore." To which he would respond and say, You know what? That's good. Here's what I'm going to do I'm going to worship. Because I've been down this road before, I'm going to worship more than likely an angel is going to come and release me and I'm going to walk out and and this is going to be some miraculous thing but even if the angel doesn't come and release me I'm going to stay right here I'm going to be chained next to your guards they're going to come in and out I'm going to share the gospel with them they're going to put their faith in Jesus and then they're going to go out there and do what I can't do but what I want to do but I'm going to do it right here regardless of how you treat me he was an untouchable man because he lived his life on his knees on his face before the Lord therefore he was standing in power. Paul's mentality toward life and ministry was just that. Reminded of the time when he's headed back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey, and the Holy Spirit's been speaking to him, been telling him what's going to happen in the future when he gets to Jerusalem. And he comes and he hears this prophet named Agabus come. This prophet comes to Paul and he says, Paul, if you go down to Jerusalem, you're going to be shackled, you're going to be in prison, you're going to lose your freedom. And Paul looks at him and he looks at the church and everyone who's gathered there and he says, I know, the Spirit of God has told me the same thing. Pray for me. And he goes to Jerusalem. Most of us, if we heard a a statement like that, if somebody with some sort of prophetic ability and came to us and says, the Lord has told me that if you go to do such and such, or if you go to such and such place, this is what's going to happen for you. It's not going to be good. You're going to be in prison. You may even be killed. Most of us, if we heard that, we would say, I'm going to change my route. I'm going to change my itinerary. I'm going to change my agenda when I get there. I'm going to do something to get out of the hardship that's facing me. But that was not the case for Paul. He simply says, pray for me. And then, and heads right into the fire. As we come to chapter 7 here in the book of Revelation, we find the church standing in the midst of God's judgment. Judgment against sinners, but at the same time, we see the church standing in the midst of Satan's persecution of the saints. We're at this crossroads as the judgment really begins to be poured out. Look at Revelation 7, beginning in verse 1. From their eyes. What we find here is the next step as we come out of the six seals. As we've studied, I guess it's been a few weeks ago now, we saw there in chapter six that the first six seals have now been broken. We studied there and learned that those six seals and moving into the seventh seal, which actually opens up and unrolls the scroll and brings everything into its it's uh, it, into its time, but these six first seals are nothing more than preliminary events leading up to what Jesus would call Matthew 24, verse eight, the beginning of birth pains. And so now we become and, and move closer to the seventh seal. We're going to see that the scroll is going to be open and the story of the end itself is unveiled. And so as we think about that, the eschaton or the end time is a very complex series of events. And so as we continue to move forward in Revelation, you need to always come in here with your plow set a little bit lower. It's going to get weighty this morning. It's going to get weighty as we drudged on through these texts. And so I just want you to stay with me. I'm trying to not get you lost in the minutia of all that's going on. But there's a lot of different things. This is a complex series of events, which are going to include several things. They're going to include the culmination of the struggle between the people of God and the satanically inspired Antichrist. It's going to involve the outpouring of God's wrath upon the Antichrist and all of those who support him. It's going to involve the full deliverance and salvation of God's people in the kingdom of God. So you've got all the things going on here. You've got God judging men who have continued to rebel against him, God judging Satan and the demonic powers, as well as in all of this the salvation of God bringing er, or coming to a full culmination, that salvation is fully being realized and actualized in the lives of believers. So here we find in chapter 7 what we might call a parenthesis or an interlude between the sixth and seventh seventh seals. It's a stylistic feature, if you will, of, that's going to be repeated as we move into the trumpet series. There in chapter 10, verse 1 through 11, 13, we see this same sort of interlude or parenthesis as it's going to give us a pause between these judgments. You say, why is there a pause? What's this whole purpose? It's serving as background information. It's serving as encouragement. It's going to help us as the reader. It's going to help the first readers understand that God's going to see the church safely through the horrifying events of the great Tribulation, and so it's meant to reassure and encourage believers. This morning in uh, Revela- or Luke chapter twenty-two th- or three that I was in, and then obviously this week reading in Matthew twenty-four and just studying for the passage, you just you hear what Jesus says about the beginning of these 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 birth pains. We read about what Jesus says about moving closer and closer to the tribulation, and Jesus knows it's going to be a very difficult time. In fact, he even says that that it's that he, um, almost like he's not, not necessarily apologizing, that's not what I want to convey, but he feels sorry for those who are going to go through He's going to feel sorry for those who are nursing young infants. He's going to feel sorry for those who are going to have to endure this because he knows it's going to be difficult and dangerous. And so what Revelation 7 is doing is it's speaking to encourage the church to continue to believe God, faith in the God, knowing that he's going to see the church through the difficult times. We move on in this. We see that John sees two different groups in this vision there's the 144,000, and then there's what we would call a great multitude. I believe John sees the church in both of these groups, but he sees them from two different vantage points. Uh, Prior to the trumpet judgments, which are coming, The last generation of believers is sealed so as to be saved from the destruction coming upon the earth, and they're going to be brought safely into the heavenly kingdom. And so this is seen in the sealing of the 144,000. The second aspect of the vision is anticipatory of the eternal blessedness of the eternal state. There in the great multitude as the people of God, from all tribes and nations and language are standing before the throne. And so this is at the very end of the time, after the tribulation, perhaps even after the millennial reign, and they're experiencing the glory of what salvation is all about as they worship and praise the Lord Jesus Christ. So Robert Mounts, one of the commentators and scholars that I like to read, makes this statement about this. He says, the visions contrast the security and blessedness that await the faithful with the panic of a pagan world fleeing from judgment. So what Mounce is telling us here is that when we read these two visions and you see what's going on in Revelation 7... It's as if God has given us a picture of two different types of people. Those who are rejoicing in their salvation and, and and standing in the blessedness of Jesus, even as they suffer. And those who are like we saw in Revelation chapter six at the end, with that fifth seal being or that sixth seal being broken, they're standing and saying, Mountains and rocks fall on us because who can stand? And so that's why I believe we have chapter seven. The great question that they're posing there is who can stand? Who can stand in the face of God's judgment? Who can stand in the face of God's holiness and his righteousness as he rains down our just penalty upon ourselves? Who can stand? The question then is met with a response. As we move into chapter 7, coming out of 617, the response is we see four angels standing at the four corners of the earth and they're holding back the four winds of the earth. Well, there's quite an image Four mighty angels holding back the wind. Obviously, the wind is destructive agents of God. Some scholars would even say that they are equated with the four horsemen that we saw in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And so another angel then ascends from the east. He begins to tell these four angels not to unleash their destruction until the full number of the people of God are sealed there in chapter 7, verse 3. In other words, the judgment of the first first plagues is to be withheld until God's people are sealed. You say, what's the big deal about a seal? What is a seal? Well, a seal is a sign of ownership. And ownership equates protection, right? If our kids are in danger, what or who steps in and protects them? We do. Why? Because we're their parents. We, I guess, in a sense, own them. I try to tell my kids all the time, I own you and I own everything you own. Right, they don't like that very well, you know. They think that's uh, uh, obsessive or maybe oppressive, I guess. But in reality, it's the truth. They're my kids, and I will and I do protect them. As we think about what the seal is, it's a sign of ownership. It's a sign of protection. And God is the God who will protect His sealed people from the wrath that He's going to pour out on sinful humanity and sin itself. God's going to protect His people. This protection is clearly seen after the sounding of the fifth trumpet. If we were to go to Revelation 9, 4, we see there that the angel is told to hold back and not not afflict the people of God, not to afflict the ones with the seal of God upon their foreheads, but only to afflict those who do not have the seal of God upon them. And so if you've studied your Bible much at all and you've read through the Exodus account, what God is doing here in the Revelation judgments is reminiscent of what we read of the ten plagues in the land of Egypt where the people of God are protected from, the God, from God's wrath and judgment that's being poured out on Egypt. It doesn't hit the land that the Israelites are in. It doesn't affect them personally, even though the overtones from the Egyptians affects them, but it, God's wrath doesn't, protect, doesn't affect them, and that's exactly what's happening in the judgments in Revelation. God's judgment's being poured out upon apostate man, but He's protecting His people from His wrath. We'll talk more about why a little later. Next, as we continue to walk through this text, John hears the number, and the number is 144,000. He hears this number of 144,000 people. He doesn't see them as we read. He hears of them. And then we saw that there's 12,000 from each of the tribes that are listed. Now, there's a couple ways for us to interpret and understand what John hears. This could be a literal reference to the nation of Israel. Probably most of you would would interpret it from this perspective. You've read it. It, Obviously, it says Israel. It just makes sense that this was the natural progression, perhaps, for you to understand and to um, fully grasp what's being conveyed here. Those who would understand the vision this way believe that they are literal Jews that God elects and God redeems as the great tribulation begins. Many who would hold this viewpoint would say that the church has already been raptured, so there's no believers on the earth at this point. They're in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. They're hanging out with Jesus. They're enjoying the bliss of being a saved, born-again follower of Jesus Christ. And so God elects and God redeems 144,000 Jews, and they become his witnesses before sinners as well as before Antichrist, and thus they suffer and endure martyrdom at the hands of those who hate God. I have complete and utter respect for this interpretation, but I personally do not hold that interpretation of what the 144,000 represent. Instead, I agree with scholars such as Mounts and Ladd and Bill and Tom Schreiner at Southern Seminary who see the 144,000 as symbolic and representing all believers. And so I'm going to give you seven reasons why. This is why I told you earlier, you got to set your plow a little bit deeper this morning. If you're a guest and you're like, this is your first time to be at Red Lane, maybe your first time to be at church, and you're like, I don't know about this. I'm lost already. Just, just stick with me, all right? I promise I'll do my best to bring it back to the end. But I think it's important that you hear some of this, right? So here's a seven reason. I'm going to pull these from Tom Schreiner, who was one of my professors in seminaries a eon ago. He says this. First of all, the first reason why we should should understand the 144,000 as symbolic, representing all Christians, is this. It's the way chapter 6 ends. See, it ends with a question, in the face of God's wrath... Who can stand? Remember what's going on there. The the, the generals and and the, the rich, the poor, the wise, the unwise, the educated, the uneducated. Everyone who's not in relationship with Jesus is experiencing this judgment of the sixth seal. And rather than bow their knees before God, who's pouring out this judgment, they're saying, mountains, follow me. Rocks, follow me. Hide me from the one who sits on the throne and the lamb. And they utter this question, who can stand in the face of God's wrath? chapter 7 answers the question. Those who can stand are those who have the seal of God upon them, which would represent all Christians. Here's a second reason. The 144,000 are referenced again in chapter 14, verse 3, and there John references them as the redeemed of the earth. Same reference as what we have in chapter 7. Seven chapters later, we see it. Now it's not the redeemed of Israel. Now it's the redeemed of the earth. And so this this title, the redeemed, is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. What it means to be saved is that you've been redeemed. You've been bought with a price. The blood of Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. But it's not just the redeemed of Israel. It's the redeemed of the earth. So I think that what we should see here is that the 144,000 speak of all believers. A third reason. There's, strong, there's a strong parallel between chapters 5 and chapter 7. Here's what I mean by that. In chapter 5, specifically verses 5 and 6, John there is, is seeing that he, what, what's happening here is that God the Father holds the scroll in his hand, and no one in heaven or earth or under theirs is found worthy to open the scroll, right? And so John begins to lament, what's going to happen? He, he's distraught over the fact that it can't be opened. And then all of a sudden, he hears of the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? Revelation 5.5. When he turns, he doesn't see a lion. He turns and he sees a lamb as if he's been slain. We move to chapter 7. You've got the same sort of parallel going on here. He hears of 144,000. He turns and sees a great multitude. So, there's a parallel there that's taking place. And so, I believe the 144,000, based upon these very strong similarities, is referencing or symbolically uh, referencing all believers. A fourth reason is the number is symbolic rather than literal. The number 12 is often used symbolically in apocalyptic writings to refer to completeness. And so, what's going on here is you've got a twofold. way of symbolizing this concept of completeness. You've got the number 12 that speaks of completeness squared with 12 tribes of Israel, and then it's multiplied by a thousand. So that's a twofold way of symbolically referencing the completeness of God's salvation among his people. A fifth reason comes from Revelation 2.9 and Revelation 3.9. There are the two letters, one to Smyrna, one to Philadelphia. And in those letters, John gives us what Jesus says about the synagogue of Satan. Jesus there is speaking of Jews in those cities who are working with the Romans to oppose believers and not just oppose them, but to harm them, to persecute them, even to kill them. And so Jesus is telling us that there are some who are Jews by, by uh, biologically, Jews by blood, but they're not the people of God. They're nothing more than a synagogue of Satan. So in chapter 7, We see that the people of God are those who believe in Jesus. They're the ones who've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Paul would say very similar things to this. In Romans chapter 4, he would tell us that not, not all who are of Abraham are of Abraham. What does it mean by that? Not everyone who has the blood of Abraham running through their veins is a son of Abraham, not a son of faith. See, to be a person or a child of God is not about blood descent other than the blood of Christ. It's not about the kind of blood running through your veins. It's about the kind of blood that's been covering your life, the blood of Jesus Christ. And so the Gentiles are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and likewise, Jews are redeemed by the blood of Of Jesus, so what we see in the New Testament is that the church is the fulfillment of the promises of Israel. It's not a rejection of Israel; it's simply the fulfillment of what Israel was meant to be—Jew, Gentile, together in Christ. Quickly, let me give you a sixth and seventh reason. The list of the tribes here do not fit any other list given in the Old Testament. I think there's like eighteen or more different, God, there might be 30, I don't remember exactly, but there are a lot of different lists of tribes throughout the Old Testament, and, and the way they're listing is oftentimes different. They put them in different order, start with different ones, but the list here doesn't fit any of those, and it even omits the tribe of Dan, as, as well as Ephraim, but it lists Joseph. You say, what's the big deal about that? Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, right? And the two sons that he had are often listed as tribes of Israel, and Levi is often um, pulled out because they didn't get land because they're the priests. And so Ephraim and Manasseh are usually stuck in those lists. Here, it just gives us Manasseh, and then it gives us Jacob, and it omits Dan. I don't know if that's a, a big reason, but I wouldn't read too much into it as far as, well, it's got to be from these tribes because it doesn't give us a full parameter of what those tribes or who those tribes were. And then with that, I would, I would add, it starts with the tribe of Judah, and guess who Jesus came through? The lion of the tribe of Judah. So rather than it starting with Reuben, the firstborn son, it's putting Jesus's descendants or his, his ancestors at the top, which is where salvation comes from. Lastly, the 12 tribes have been lost. When Assyria came in and conquered Israel, the northern ten tribes, they basically wiped out their identity. And then even those who were wiped out in the southern two tribes, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin by Babylon, they also struggled for many centuries, well, many centuries after their coming back from exile. It seems like everything's kind of blended together, and it would be very, very difficult for Jews today to, to identify and say with certainty, this is the tribe I'm from. Now, obviously, Jesus can do anything, right? Because he says he's going to resurrect our bodies one day, and we all turn to dust, and some have been lost at sea, some have been burned. I mean, there's all kinds of things. And how is he going to resurrect our bodies? Well, he's the God who spoke everything to existence, so he can bring it all back to, to existence. So this is not a, a really hard reason, but I believe it's a reason l- worth noting. All right, now I know you're bored. So wake up. That's a lot. But I believe those seven reasons are, are good reasons why we should understand the 144,000. Golly, symbolic. Jonathan, I told you to set that clock ahead. I should have told you to leave it where it was because I'd have a whole <laughs> lot more time. All right. Well, let's wait through this. I'm gonna, we're, we're about to land the plane. <clears throat> so. John hears of 144,000. He turns and sees a great multitude standing before the throne. Notice where who, who's standing there. It's from every nation and tribe and people and language, all standing before the throne. All of that speaking of all believers from all time, from all peoples. This new vision is set in the future, as I mentioned earlier. It's set into the future after the tribulation, and now as the people of God have entered this blessed eternal state. The reward of the perseverance in the first eight verses is experience in the reward of what we see in 9 through 17 as the redeemed of the earth declare the greatness of God's in salvation and the host of heaven join them in worship. And so as John is observing all of this, one of the elders begin to ask him a question who are these and where have they come and he says you know and then he begins to tell them that these are the ones who've washed their robes in the blood of Jesus and they've come out of the great tribulation which means that perhaps many of them who are standing around the throne in this picture are coming from the great tribulation sometimes many times as Christians in America suffering is something we just can't stomach I uh, saw a video this past week of a guy that I've never even heard of him. Must pastor a large church somewhere, some sort of word of faith type church. And and, uh, he was literally saying, uh, he was, I guess these people who, invest into their ministry or whatever and he was basically prophesying this blessing over them saying since you've you've given here and you've invested here you're part of what we're doing to take the gospel to people and so nothing's going to come against you no sickness is going to come against you. he had the audacity to even say that coronavirus is not even going to touch your life because you've invested here and I'm sitting here listening to this thinking this is the biggest hogwash I've ever heard in my life because Christians suffer Christians are killed Perhaps the reason the American church is so weak today is because we've had it so easy for so long. I don't long for difficult days. I don't long for persecution. I don't long for suffering. I was praying through this this morning. I don't long for those days. I see them on the horizon. I don't want them to come, but I am grateful that when they do come, the church will be strengthened. And that's why we should not lose heart when times get tough. And I believe that's why God is giving us this chapter. He's pausing here in the midst of all that's going on. He's saying, you will and you can endure the suffering because I will stay with you. I will be with you. I will encourage you. I will strengthen you. You will have my seal upon your head. Nothing can and nothing will touch you unless I allow it. And that's true of us even today. So the chapter ends. 15, 16, and 17, with the blessing of God upon those who persevered and stood strong. So we're brought back to our question who can stand? You might have disagreed, and perhaps you did, with everything I said about why you should understand and interpret it this way, but I think we can all agree on these four things that I want to share with you in the answer to this question. Who can stand? Four things about those who can stand. Number one, those who stand have bowed their knees in full surrender to Jesus. See, human logic says if I am to become something, I have to do it on my own. That logic may work for some if not many areas of life, but it fails miserably when it comes to spiritual life. I want you to go with me real quickly, if you will. In John chapter 3, we're introduced to a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. John even tells us that he's a ruler of the Jews there in John 3.1. He's intrigued by Jesus. He's heard him teach. He's probably seen miracles. And so one night, under the cloak of darkness, he approaches Jesus, and they get into this theological conversation about what it means to be a follower of the Messiah, what it means to have uh, salvation in God, what it means to be converted, to experience the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells him that the way one entered the kingdom was to be born again by the Spirit. Now, there had to be a spiritual transformation in a person's life is what Jesus is arguing here. And so religiosity and good intentions and pedigree were never going to be enough. One must come to God by faith. Jesus described it a little different in John chapter 12, verse 24, when he said, there, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, if it goes down, it will bear much fruit because it's coming up. The people here in Revelation chapter 6, verse 15, who are hiding themselves from God's wrath, refuse to bow their knees and surrender. Instead, in the face of obvious destruction, they thought they could shelter themselves or at least die and and escape the, the wrath of God. The answer to their question, who can stand, is answered here in this chapter. Those who stand are those who bow and surrender to the lordship of Christ. Number two, those who stand have been washed and made clean. By the blood of the Lamb. Verse nine. John sees the great multitude standing before the throne and the Lamb. They're clothed in white robes. They're carrying palm branches, which symbolize victory. Now, sometimes we may look at this and we understand where they're coming out of. They're coming out of tribulation. They're coming out of difficulties. And we might think that the robes of the palm branches and their close proximity to the Lord is somehow been won or attained by their faithfulness. But that's not the case at all. They stand before the Lord clothed in white and they celebrate victory not because they won it but because the Lamb of God won it for them. They've been washed in his blood and the great multitude are shouting with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Believers stand before God solely because of the cleansing power of Jesus' blood that removes sin. This leads us to a third reason. Those who stand are sealed and protected from the wrath of God to come. You see, the blood of Jesus washes and makes sinners clean before a holy God. The shed blood of Jesus has paid the full penalty for His. You don't carry any of your sin around with you once you come to Jesus. You are not partially forgiven. You are not a little bit forgiven. You are not ninety-nine percent forgiven. You are completely washed in the blood of the Lamb. And here is a good thing. You see, I love a white shirt. I like an undershirt guy. I mean, you may not be an undershirt guy. I think you're weird if you don't wear an undershirt. Uh, especially if you've got the shirt unbuttoned down here and your ch- chest hairs are all hanging out. Um, if you're doing that, I'm just, I'm just going to laugh at you internally. I'm not going to do it face-to-face, but I don't want to get punched in the eye and get another black eye. But one of the things that drives me nuts is that when you wash a white shirt enough, it no longer is white. You ever... Come off that problem, especially when you got well water. You right, you got to really work hard on that well water. Sometimes even city water to keep your whites white. And so we, as humans, struggle with sin. Even in our in our salvation, we're not we're not totally. Divorce from the propensity to sin or the capacity to sin. We struggle with it all the time. It's who we are. We're sinners. We live in this body of flesh. But our sins have been forgiven. They've been removed as far as the east as from the west. And God remembers them no more. And so the redeemed now enjoy the full benefits and privileges of sonship, which involves being sealed and protected from the wrath of God Upon sin. The judgments here in the eschaton are going to be brutally severe, unlike anything the world has known. For this reason, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus laments those who will have to go through it. It's going to be an intense time of suffering for believers, but suffering will not come from God's wrath, it will come from Satan's war against God's people. He's going to stand and protect you from the wrath he's pouring out on them, but rest assured, you will endure tribulation in this life but it won't come from God number 4 those who stand are rewarded for their faithful perseverance the reward is the finality of their salvation remember i said the great multitude is a picture into the future this is sort of a window here. As you look at chapter 7, it's like, all right, those who are about to go into these, these judgments, these trumpets and bowls are going to be poured out. You're the seal of God being placed upon your life. You're going to be protected from the wrath of God to come. And then the great multitude is this snapshot way into the future as those who have come through the tribulation and everyone else stand before the throne and they enjoy all that salvation has provided for them. They're rewarded for their perseverance in this life regardless of what their life is was like. No longer are they striving against the hardships of this world, but their shepherd is guiding and leading them to springs of living water. Every tear is wiped away. The fight is over, and the time of peace has come. Anybody long for that day? Anybody long for the day where death is not something you struggle against? I mean, we're so crazy about a virus right now, and I'm not making light of it, but it ought to just spark something in us that we're an anxious people. We're a fearful people, right? When a, when a virus, and, and you take the magnitude of, I don't know, what, six and a half, seven billion people in the world, and you've got maybe 100,000 people who have it, and we're freaking out about it. Now, I'm not in favor of everyone who's died. I'm not hear what I'm saying, but it, it should open us up to the reality that we are a fearful people, but as a follower of Jesus, we have nothing to fear. I mean, what is death going to do for us? It gets me on the other side. I joke with care all the time. If I die, I get to go with, be, be with Jesus, and you get a lot of money. She's like, well, i you will know, burn through that. I want you to stay here. I'm not really sure where her heart is. But uh, she's not in here right now. She's probably listening to me downstairs in the nursery. So I need to be careful. We have nothing to fear. What can death do? Remember what I was saying about Paul earlier. He was an untouchable man because he, he didn't care to die is gain. To live is Christ made me suffer, God's going to do something through that suffering that's going to benefit me. I'm going to see more of his glory. I'm going to see more of his presence. I'm going to see more of his power. If you put me in prison and try to lock me away, God's going to do something there. He's going to allow me to have ministry. I mean, you think of Joseph and and the book of Genesis, and he's he's just continually marginalized and sidelined and mistreated and misrepresented, and God continues to use him. It doesn't matter what comes against you in your life. If you will be faithful, God will use you, and there's a reward waiting for you. These are the promises for those who stand in Christ. They're promised the blessings of the kingdom. They're given to those who bow their knee and surrender to Jesus. They're given to those who wash themselves in the blood of the lamb. They're not given to religious people. They're not given to people who try hard or who thought they were going to make it. They're given to those who said yes to Jesus and no to themselves. For Francis Thompson, it took a while. He had to hit rock bottom in his life. And for us, that's true as well. Many times we have to hit rock bottom before we begin to look up and find Jesus. It's a lot like the rich young, uh, the prodigal son in Luke 15 who had to hit rock bottom before he came back to the Father. Here's the reality. You may be able to quote the whole book of Romans. You may be able to share a gospel presentation with someone else. You may be one of the finest teachers in the world. You may be a hellion, and you don't care anything about God, but you're here this morning. But it doesn't matter who you are, what you know, or what you can do. When you stand before the Lord, if you're standing in your own power and ability, that's the most dangerous and destructive place to be. But if you're standing there because there was a moment in your life where you bowed before Jesus and you said yes to him, you can stand. Many of you have done that. Last week we talked about a friend of sinners, and that's who Jesus is. This morning, if you've never met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I hope you catch the magnitude of what those in chapter 6 are saying as the wrath of God is being poured out upon them. Who can stand? You can't. So the best thing you can do is try to hide, but you can't hide from sovereignty. You can't hide from the one who sees all things and knows all things and is everywhere. You can't hide from that. And yet we try. So what do we do this morning? The safest, the wisest, the smartest decision is to get on your face and bow today. Because there's coming a day, even when it's too late, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we rejoice in what Jesus has done for us. We rejoice this morning in the fact, the reality, the truth that when He was on the cross and His blood was being shed, it was being shed for us. As He was there on that cross and He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, He was feeling what we would one day feel if we would never have met Jesus. Eternal separation and the wrath of a holy God against our sin. We we rejoice this morning in the fact that that doesn't have to be our experience. That doesn't have to be our story. For many in this room, our story is this. As we, at one point in our life, whether it's a child or an adult. We heard the gospel. We understood what it meant for us, that we're sinners separated from God, that our sin is judged and will be judged. But there's forgiveness in Jesus who paid our pe- penalty, paid our debt. And now asks us and invites us to turn from that sin and to turn to Him. God, I pray for for all of us in this room. I pray for Christians first. or that we would just sit with that for a moment this morning and realize what we have in Jesus. And today, even before what we have read here in Revelation 7-9, where we will join believers from all times and all places and we will join in with the host of heaven and we will declare the greatness of our God in salvation but even before that day God that we would begin to rejoice afresh and anew because of what you've done for us and it would lead to us walking with you more intimately serving you more faithfully with our hearts being warmed You like never before. God, I pray for others in this room and those who may listen this week in our podcast who are far from God. They're sitting here this morning and they're listening to this message. Lord, your message to them is this I love you. I want to be in a relationship with you. Why don't you come home? Lay your sin down. God, as we move into a time of response, I pray that would be true of us. We would come home. And we thank you today that we can stand because of Jesus. Lord, bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Just a couple.